0: I'm Laura Jones, and this is Radioactive. We're a show for grassroots activists, community builders, punk rock farmers, and DIY creatives. Thanks for joining us tonight. On the show, James Jackson III of the Utah Black Chamber is back to continuous conversations with folks featured in the chamber's new book, Black Utah, Stories from a Thriving Community. He's going to talk with one of Utah's DIY creatives, Liz Lampson, She's executive director of the Utah Black History Museum, but first and foremost, Lamson calls herself a creative. She's an artist, a writer, and a musician also known as Lizzie Luna. Stick around to meet her and hear one of her songs. With President's Day coming up next week, I recently had a chance to talk with author Ron Gruner. He's a former tech CEO who founded, started, and sold three companies over the course of his career. But given his business background, He wanted to take a look at the economic policies of those who have occupied the Oval Office from Harding to Trump. And the result is his new book, We the Presidents, How American Presidents Shaped the Last Century. And I think he'll give you a unique perspective to consider on this President's Day. To start though, a conversation I had earlier today with Rabbi David Levinsky of Temple Har Shalom. It is a Reform congregation with 400 families in Park City. Unfortunately, you may have seen the news stories, and the rabbi told me there have been several anti-Semitic and racist incidents at local schools. He says the response from leadership in the school district is less than impressive, frankly. So here's Rabbi Levinsky to share what's been going on.
1: A teacher in our religious school, Josh, Josh Goldberg, uh, discovered in his classroom, he's a history teacher at Park City High School, that a swastika had been drawn at, on a desk. Um, and also then in the, the parking lot of the school on the, that day, I believe there were other swastikas also discovered around the school that day, but in the parking lot of the school, there was also a swastika and the N word and some hate speech drawn in dirt on a car in the parking lot. Uh, unfortunately, really not a surprise, um, you know, pretty consistently, since I, I arrived here six years ago, um, you know, I've been dressi- addressing anti-Semitic hate speech in the schools. Um, you know, I can only imagine what the Latinx community and the LGBTQ community are experiencing if the Jewish community is experiencing that. And uh, the teacher, Josh Goldberg, at this point, has documented over uh, over 50 incidents.
0: Over 50 incidents and wide-ranging, not just anti-Semitic, but bigotry in general? Yes. What do you think this
1: points to? I, I think it, it's a difficult question to answer. What I would say is this, is that it's really important that we not see this simply as individuals misbehaving, but we understand this in a larger cultural context, both the cultural context that's been created at the schools and also the cultural context in Park City at large, in the state at large, in the nation at large, because those factors are are very much tied in um, with this with this rise of uh, hatred, you know that we're that we're seeing in the in the Park City schools.
0: So, as a rabbi and responsible for your congregation, how do you address that rabbinically? <laughs> I guess is the the word I'm looking for. But in a way to bring the community together and create the conversation, the productive conversation we need.
1: Well that's that's really what I'm moving towards now. I was in an initial stage where um, I was very much uh, trying to just raise awareness. Um, and raising awareness of incidents, especially when there's uh, resistance to acknowledging the reality and also resistance to address the reality, um, sometimes has to, be rather strident. that was a choice on my part. I'm a very calm individual, but I chose to use anger. And, um, but it's also a way to ultimately to open up a conversation and open up a dialogue, um, you know, with the people who can make the kinds of decisions to help this situation, the school board and the, uh, and the superintendent. You
0: know, we've had on our program quite often Professor Amos Giora from the S.J. Quinney College of Law. He's been behind a push for bystander laws in Utah. He talks a lot about um, uh, this issue in a variety of creative ways. And sometimes I just think it can stay isolated in academic approach or legislative approach or within the communities that are directly affected, what would you like our listeners to know about how this issue affects them as well, even if the bigotry or the anti-Semitism wasn't directed at them?
1: The first thing that general community members can do is, is talk, if you have kids, talk about this with them. And the most important thing to do is to let them know that when they use hateful speech, it hurts people. It causes pain. And and it's not aligned with your family values and the way that you want your family to be and the way that you want your community to be. And the other thing you can be to use the language of Dr. Guillermo is um, to not be a bystander but to be an upstander, to be an ally and to, to stand up and help the efforts of minority communities um, you know, to, fight, to fight hate speech.
0: In an email that you sent out on this issue, you said you weren't happy with the way the school district or certain folks within the school district were treating this issue. Has anything changed in that regard in the intervening time?
1: The, in my initiative, the, um, the superintendent of the, of the school district uh, met with me. You know, we had a long meeting and a conversation Um where I I advocated for change, she let me know what they were doing and talked about their current investigative process um, and which is at a school level, we'd really like that to be operating at a district level in coordination with law enforcement. There also has been really very incomplete communication with parents of victims in this process. Um, which is understandable, you know, with principals are handling it. You know, they're trying to run a school. They got a lot to do. This really has to happen at the district level. There really should be a a director of equity investigations who's taking care of these things and that position doesn't exist. Um, So, you know, that's one thing that we've advocated for. So she mentioned that they have an investigative process and I give that to her, but it does need improvement. And um, she mentioned also that they're going to do a, just in the high school again not a district-wide initiative they're going to have a one-time hate speech lesson in all of the the classrooms and again you know what i said to her is that you know we really need sustained anti-bias training and curricular changes to to make a difference and not just in one school but at a at a district at a district level um, you know and yeah, uh, She did mention to me that she was willing to contact the Anti-Defamation League to see what their curricula are are like. Um, there are other fabulous ones, um, whether direct Holocaust education from the Holocaust Museum. There's a wonderful program facing history in ourselves. There's great materials out there that are very easy to access. Um, I'm literally the next thing I'm going to do when I get off of the talk, you know, this phone call is to um, um, write to her and ask her whether she had contacted the ADL. Um, so I, I don't know whether whether she has or not. Um, but we we are really experiencing a, a tremendous amount of resistance from both the school board and the superintendent, um, you know, to make tangible changes to help this situation. Well, that um, feels
0: like a little bit kids will be kids uh, response.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's, I think the the neutral way to put that is that there's a real focus on dealing with this as disciplinary problems as opposed to dealing with it as a cultural issue. And that's really what we're calling for, is to deal with it as a cultural issue and to acknowledge uh, that it's a district-wide phenomenon.
0: Well, Rabbi, the lawmakers are in session as we speak on Utah's Capitol Hill, and the politics of our times is that uh, we don't want kids to feel bad about what those before them may have done Um, I'm talking about critical race theory in particular, Um, Yet you are advocating a K through 12 diversity curriculum in your email, at least district wide, I would like to see it. It's statewide. Um, What would you say to lawmakers about this issue for those that would want to, um, instead of uh, never forget, never remember, it feels like
1: at times to me? Well, you know, first I want to acknowledge the positive things that has happened at the Statehouse and with Governor Cox. There was a a hate crime law that was passed, which is just tremendous. Um, That is not a small thing, and it was a difficult thing to get through, and it got through. Um, Governor Cox, after the recent kidnapping of a Reform rabbi in Texas, called um, Jewish leaders in Utah in for a private meeting with him and spoke to us. Uh, for more than an hour. He scheduled an hour and he gave us more time than that. Um, he was a really good listener um, and is really committed to this. Um, and so, so at, the, at the level of, and there's a uh, the house, I believe, I think Doug Owens right now is putting forward something to try to get a condemnation of anti-Semitism through um, in the legislative session right now. So, so the state house and the governor you know, have, have really done some good things. What, what I think is unfortunate is that the efforts to name things as critical race theory, which actually often aren't critical race theory, if you look into what critical race theory is. You know, what it's doing, it's dividing, our, it's dividing our efforts to work together as our community to fight against hate and turning it into a political issue, which it should not be no matter what your politics are, you know, whether you're conservative or, or a liberal, you should be able to, we should be able to work together to stop hatred in our schools and to let it become a political issue and resist this because in some way it resembles to a misapprehension of what critical race theory is. You know, I just find it very sad that that's the case, that some, you know, very well-meaning conservatives who, who, you know, really don't want this problem to exist are are waylaying what, when we look at evidence-based scholarship, is really the most effective way to approach these issues, and that's um, anti-bias training combined with a diversity curriculum.
0: Rabbi David Levinsky of Temple Harshalom in Park City. I'll include a link in tonight's show notes if you'd like to reach out, get in touch, and be of service on this issue. This is Radioactive. I'm Laura Jones. And now we continue to pass the microphone... To James Jackson III of the Utah Black Chamber, he's been talking with folks featured in the chamber's new book, "Black Utah Stories from a Thriving Community."
2: Well, thank you so much, Laura, for allowing me to steal the spotlight to highlight folks from we've been interviewing with "Black Utah Stories from the Thriving Community." And who I have with me today is Liz Lampson. and Laura and I were just talking about you know Utah being the side hustle capital of the world, and you are no exception to this, you know, I've, I've always had a side hustle since I graduated college and which became the Utah Black Chamber, but I remember we sitting down for our interviewing with the book, and that was me meeting you for the very first time, and yeah. all from what I knew is that you played string bass for Ballet West, and mm-hmm. that you're the executive director of Utah Black History Museum, yes. and then in the interview, you talked about an artist, and now I'm finding out a musician, uh, you, you know, singer, and songwriter and rapper as well. Like,
3: whoa. (laughs) I know. I do so many things. Um, I mean, I classify myself as a creative, um, and I'm just the type of person who, well, creative, sorry. I classify myself as a creative and a dreamer, which means that when I have a dream of something that I want to try or do, or envision some project or something, um, I just go for it. Um, So that has led me into in in so many different directions. Um, I do visual art painting. I've done some murals lately, got onto the mural scene. um, And I write and perform music. I created a program called Yoga Storytime and Songs with my alter ego, Lizzie Luna, and I, um, where I sing and play the guitar and uh, tell stories and incorporate yoga into all of that. And that program I've done at the Salt Lake City Library as part of their summer reading program, but because of the pandemic, um, many of the in-person programs were canceled. And so um, as as my yoga program started to kind of go into hibernation, I would say, um, I found myself doing more visual art. And then even more recently, um, another dream I've had is to be an actress. And um, I've been, uh, or I signed with McCarty Talent Agency, and have been doing auditions through them. so I'm kind of adding that to my plate of things
2: that I'm trying and going for. Let's well, See, no one can say anything about what how my hustle then because my hustle is minimal compared to everything that you're doing because you're coming from so many different aspects of the creative world. I mean, it takes so many different gifts that you're doing. Like for me, I feel like I'm, I'm just talking to people, but <laughs> you're playing an instrument, you're singing, you're writing, you're drawing. Um, visualizing um and you know being a visionary for the utah black history museum
3: oh yes the museum is a is a big thing a big project yeah Um, yeah i mean i i do feel like all of these things come from the same place like my creative drive um it all comes from this same central uh fountain of um creative thinking or um big ideas that's where they, they all come from the same place um and the museum was one of those big projects that uh I got kind of I got kind of pulled into it and then became super um committed to bringing the vision to life and I think that's one thing that I'm good at is having a, a, a vision or something, a dream, mm-hmm. and then realizing it, actually making it happen. And um, that's one. Of, I feel that that's one of my, my skills, just ma- realizing things, <laughs> realizing. <laughs> um, so with the Utah Black History Museum, I was invited to paint the exterior of this gigantic school bus. Um, with a mural Um, and another artist and I, Gretel Tam, and I painted the bus. And the idea was to have this big school bus carrying a mobile museum, a mobile exhibit to around the state of Utah, teaching people about Utah's, specifically Utah's black history. We also incorporate some national black history, um, but really wanting to highlight specifically you his utah's black historical figures um and so once the bus was painted i was like okay what's next you know what's the next step and and there wasn't a super clear plan on um how to get from point a to point b which is actually taking a museum out to the people so i um, just kind of dove into it dived into it and um, Worked with a lawyer to establish Utah Black History Museum as a 501c3 nonprofit. And we established a board and um, started clarifying roles of of how um, our board members and uh, administrators would function. And we collected artifacts and um, prepared. Um, our historian Taryn Mitchell prepared some beautiful um uh posters with biographies and historical uh, well, biographies and stories and just all the information um that that makes a great exhibit. Put it together and we launched it one year ago in February 2021 for Black History Month. And um it's been a great success, and there's such a demand for it. Um, people have been very receptive and um, interested in the stories that the museum has to tell.
2: Okay, what, what are some highlights? Man, I know during Black History Month, it's been busy for Utah Black History Museum. I know um, one of our mutual relationships is Texas Instruments to show share yeah. with me pictures of you guys being way out there. Um, and I think there was someone who reached out to me from Dugway and wondering if there's an opportunity for you to head out there. I don't know if you made it out that far. But what are some like yes. some highlights that you'd like to share that what's, what, what kind of it kind of share like the impact that the museum has brought to the community?
3: The exhibit addresses some very serious issues and topics and events that have happened in our own state of Utah. Um, At the same time, as we address some difficult things, we want to highlight Black excellence and figures historic Utah, Black Utahns who have accomplished great things and contributed a lot to the growth of our community and our um, state's culture um, so it's seeing people learn from our exhibit to come and see things they've never seen before and read our information absorb information that they've never known previously um, it's really you can see how enlightening it is for the people who um, who interact with with our exhibit. And I think it's just extra impactful in our state because we have such a small black population here, less than 2%, I think. And um, so you have people in Utah um, who have never met a black person. Have never interacted with a Black person, um, have no Black friends. <laughs> um, and then you have some people who have maybe a couple Black acquaintances, but perhaps don't know them very well and just don't have a lot of exposure to the Black experience. Um, and so it's it's cool to just to see, it's really magical to see um, people come and and the i think what's what's the best is is observing and listening to the conversations that are that happen the conversations people have around um the the topics addressed in the exhibit um and i get to engage in conversation with people as well and i am learning a lot um from our exhibit like i'm not a historian i act as um executive director but that means I make things happen but I I'm I don't have a history background and so I'm I'm learning a lot as well just by being a part of the project um but you know it's really it is really amazing to to just see people um absorbing information they didn't know
2: yeah no I I could see that. That's in in the in the times that we're in, and the division that we have. Have you seen anyone that just kind of had you see their their mind shift or their perspective change after going through and, and learning the things from the museum?
3: Yeah, definitely. Um, I think. I mean, here's here's a specific example. Our bus driver um he's not black and he um was driving the bus and someone passed him and made a rude gesture at him um and also one of our bus windows was broken and those um as this driver observed these things he he kind of developed a new, it changed his perspective on where we're coming from because there is like real, racism is real. There is animosity um, between racial groups and tension. And I think, you know, our hope and goal is to create positive connections between groups. and you know we want our culture to be recognized and not ignored, respected and appreciated, not dismissed. And um, and it's it's uncomfortable it can be, but it's it's essential. Um, if we are going to be unified, we need to learn about each other and and develop empathy.
2: Yeah, I think, <clears throat> and to that, I think that's pretty powerful. Having a, a non-black bus driver and just witnessing that experience and shifting that perspective and strengthening that allyship that he has yeah. with the, you know, not he's not just driving a museum around; he's driving impact to the community educating the community that yeah. I, I feel that even in, ingrained that into him more It's like he's part of this change that can happen
3: yeah yeah um every time we take it out it's and um it just feels good to be like making making a real difference um in exposing people to um just all this new new information. Um, But at the same time, it's not new information. It's just history that has been glossed over, glided over, ignored, not highlighted. Mm -hmm. Um, So we especially, you know, enjoy taking the museum to schools. Um, It's it's really great for, um, especially the middle and high school um, ages, age groups. you see them, you know, in their in their classrooms. They can only cover so much material, and I think that in school curriculums there is an effort to um, branch out a little more and focus um, on minority groups um, in in the classroom. But um, you know, there's so much history. Utah, like specifically Utah black history that, I mean, there could be a whole year's college course <laughs> diving into Utah's black history. And, you know, you, you'd still only just be scratching the surface. You know, there's, there's a lot, there's so many stories. There's so many things that have happened in our state regarding um, on the topic of black history. So um i'm rambling a little bit
2: (laughs) no you're no you're good i I, I, I lost my
3: direction here
2: no that that, that was we can reel it back in because one of the questions the next question i was going to ask is wondering if you felt like there's been an increase in requests from schools knowing and understanding that there is this talk about CRT and mm-hmm. knowing about the expansion more of bringing ethnic studies into the curriculum more, mm-hmm. Be, mm-hmm. Um, helping teachers become more flexible and adapt to help educate their students more. You felt like that's increased um, as far Abs- as requests for you?
3: Yes, absolutely. And I wish that we had more I wish we had more capability to reach more people. Like I wish that the bus could be on the road every day, (laughs) Mm. visiting every single school (laughs) in the state, every college, um, every organization. You know, I think that every, every time we reach, um, a small group of people in our community, like we see such a a meaningful impact. And, um, so we do, we are getting a lot of requests and I noticed that especially during black history month, you know, it's February and it's crossing people's mind. Oh, black history. What's something that we could do at our school or something that we could do at our company. Um, so people are reaching out, um, but it's, it's, I would just say next year we'll have to everyone just plan ahead (laughs) just know that (laughs) february is coming and uh, reach out before black history month to arrange something
2: (laughs) Um, i I feel like that was a pitch out there for people listening that we need this bus going out every single day which means (laughs) we we need people to to throw in some, kick down some funds, some sponsorships, yeah. some donations. We need more bus drivers and maybe even another bus. How can folks book yes. the bus?
3: Um, well, you just go to the website and email. I, I've i been bugging our web developer to put a form on the website. <laughs> <laughs> we have had a form in the past and that's and uh, we just need to um, get like a, our form back up on our website. But um, right now it's just email. Utah black History museum at gmail.com and I'm the one who checks the email and I'm a little bit behind <laughs> but that brings up a good okay. point like what we what we are lacking is um like we need we're totally hundred percent volunteer run right now um with the exception of our drivers we are able to pay our drivers but um we want a building we want a home base where people can come and visit as in addition to having the bus that can go out to the the forest corners of the state um i think the further you get from the urban center of salt lake city in um the fewer black people there are so it's it's really in the um the rural areas of the state where you especially where you will find people who have never met a black person and mm-hmm. uh, So those are places that are, I think, important to reach so we can create connections, meaningful connections. Um, And yeah, so we do, we, you know, as a 501c3, we we accept um, tax-deductible donations and we really hope to get to a point in our growth where we can have a staff, where we can have a building and we can... um, meet the demand. Right now, we're just so small and with our volunteer base, um, we just don't have the, the manpower or woman power <laughs> to um, meet meet the, the demand that exists.
2: I know we talked a lot about the Utah Black History Museum, um, but I want to get dialed back into to Liz Lampson, AKA Lizzie Luna, because you are one oh. of the few people of color playing for ballet west is that correct
3: yeah there's a lot of diversity in amongst the dancers which is great because they draw in um these incredible professional ballerinas from around the world um ballet west has is just such a premier organization that they draw in um just such incredible people from so many backgrounds. Um, I will say though, that the, the Bally West Orchestra is made up of local musicians, um, who have been recruited from the local music scene. And, um, so I find myself as the one African-American, uh, woman or person in the orchestra. And, um, being that person <laughs> um, in the orchestra, I, I've I've found myself reflecting a lot on my how I've ended up where I am, and then also how how and why not more um, black people are in classical music. Um, there's a really cool national well international organization called Sphinx, and they. Um, they bring together black and Latinx classical musicians from around the world. And um, I had an opportunity to go to their conference a few years ago and act as a liaison. There were a lot of panel discussions about, um, you know, why why it is that um, people of color are not as as involved in the classical music world. and I mean, it's the answers are so clear. I mean, it socioeconomic status is a huge thing, um, and then also just cultural um, cultural expect, expectations or cultural um, traditions. Um, traditionally and historically, um, it's sort of the wealthier white community that has had access to things like music lessons, um, classical dance lessons. Um, and so you find even, you know, if, if, if less than 2% of the population of Utah is Black, you will find an, a, a much, even much smaller percentage of people um, involved in the arts community um whether that's visual arts um painting graphic design dance um it's just it's not something that's always been um as accessible to the black community or or as um commonly practiced um so anyway yeah being part of the orchestra is wonderful and i I hope that more of the youth in our state, the students, the young people, especially the the youth of color, can find greater access to opportunities to learn and get involved in the arts. Um, I don't want to be the only black person in the orchestra, <laughs> you know. I don't. I I want to see more people from our community having these kinds of opportunities
2: yeah well i mean hopefully this is a um people who get who who listen here can um absorb that and seeing that you're you're paving the trail for that to make happen and um you know we just appreciate you sharing your talents and gifts and maybe that inspire others up and coming or those that are here that have the gifts but haven't really found that outlet and they'll find you um enable in in order to share that so with that in mind as we wrap up let's go ahead instead of turning it back over to laura we'll share some of those gifts and talents and um as we as we finish up wrap up this interview we'll go to lizzie luna's reach the sky album and we'll listen to jungle Warriors." that's found on all music platforms apple music spotify what have you but liz thank you so much for joining us and
3: sharing your time with us thanks it's always a pleasure to talk with you I'm warrior one in the long run You know what makes me strong? I may not be tall, maybe sort of small But I got a big heart And that's all you need, really, to get by Love will give you wings to fly And a strong soul, that's my goal Hear my heart sing Warriors don't have to fight all the time Doing spin-jitsu like I gotta get you On the gritty ground, just kicking down Ain't what I wanna do I wanna help you, lift you, see you Love you like a bro, yo What you gotta know, yo Is that I got your back, hey Single day, yeah
1: My name's Richard, I'm the host of a show called I Don't Sound Like Nobody on KRCL. I play 1950s rock and roll and its precursors each and every Friday from 1 to 3 a.m. Join this KRCL Nightbird and our flight crew as we dance the night away every Friday morning from 1 to 3 a.m. only on KRCL 90.9 FM.
0: Curly Me is a resource for families with children of color, specifically black girls between the ages of 5 and 14 years. Visit CurlyMe.org for events and mentoring opportunities to help educate, empower, and encourage girls to be their best selves.
2: There's something very special about record albums. The way you hold them in your hands, and you read the liner notes, and the way you gently pull the record out of its sleeve and check the label and the grooves. It's like a treasure. I know, I get it. The annual KRCL CD and record sale is coming up, and your records can be a treasure for the next music lover. Someone else can feel that same joy of music discovery, and it will help your community radio station. You can email Eric Nelson. It's ericn at krcl.org.
0: Welcome back to Radioactive. I'm Laura Jones. Democracy Now! comes your way at 7 o'clock tonight, followed by Thursday Night Psych Out with DJ Mike at 8, The Dirty Boulevard at 10.30 with Gianni, I Don't Sound Like Nobody with Rich Parks, Jolene's Illustrated Blues at 3 a.m., and John Florence starts your brand new day at 6. The last two weeks of any program, including Radioactive, can be listened to on-demand at krcl.org. Just click on the Programs tab. With President's Day on Monday, I recently had a chance to talk with Ron Gruner. He's a former tech CEO who founded, started, and sold three companies over the course of his career. And given his background, he wanted to take a look at the economic policies of those who have occupied the Oval Office, from Harding to Trump, And the result is his new book, We the Presidents, How American Presidents Shaped the Last Century. To start our conversation, I asked him to share a little bit more background on himself.
4: There are two aspects of my life that I think influenced the book. And the the first is where I was born and where I worked. And I was born and and raised in Oklahoma, uh, one of the reddest of the red states. And being in computers and loving computers, uh, even in high school, I uh, moved to Massachusetts when I was 21 years old, one of the bluest of the blue states. So I have friends and acquaintances and family that live in both areas, and uh, oftentimes their views are very, very different uh, politically and economically, and that's influenced my thoughts. Uh, also, having been an engineer, I've tried to look at issues as, uh, I've tried to at least as objectively and factually as possible and, and keep uh, ideology and, and emotion out of issues. That's a little bit about my background.
0: Very analytical, it sounds like. And so I'm curious how you applied that lens to your book, We the Presidents, How American Presidents Shaped the Last Century. And you write in the book that aside from maybe an event during Reagan's run and one during Obama's, again, balancing there, I think, um, you not not been very involved in politics.
4: Well, I voted uh, every year. I, I, I was eligible to vote in 1968, and I've voted in every election. But um, I have pro- I have crossed the aisle probably uh, as often and the left to the left to, as to the right. So, as my dad used to say back in the fifties, uh, I vote for the man, not the party. And I've uh, remembered that, and I've tried to do that.
0: And also in your book, you write that you got interested in presidential history the year you retired, 2015. And let me just read from your book here. It was a period when American politics was transitioning from merely polarized to openly tribal. And I don't think we're much better here in 2022,
4: Ron. I think we're probably, uh, probably quite a bit worse than we were in 2015. They were shocking in 2015, but I think today it's uh, it's far, far worse, unfortunately.
0: One of the things I really appreciate your book about your book is the lens you place on the presidents and the tools in the book to analyze it. Folks, there's a great uh, couple of appendices in the back um, on key economic indicators, personal income adjusted to 2020 dollars and U.S. presidential election results. And I think that's part of what we're getting bombarded with in our current political discourse is you have to be an expert. You have to be able to pull up the data and cite it and notate it. In your over the fence conversations, and it's driving me nuts. Here's a question for you, Ron. Can the president really impact gas prices? You focus an economic lens on presidential history. And this is one I hear over and over when the president, when the Oval Office changes political parties, is they're either good or bad for gas prices. And I feel like that's a really insulting uh, conversation that politicians direct at us as a weapon. Um the whole gas price conversation and presidential responsibility.
4: Well, that, that is so true. Obviously, politics is about gaining an advantage. And when something goes wrong, um, uh, politicians are going to blame the other side no matter what. That's just the way it is, unfortunately. Uh, can presidents influence gas prices? Uh, really not in the short term very much. In the long term, absolutely. Uh, President Carter uh, pioneered the notion of conservation, energy conservation in 1978, after energy prices had climbed uh, 1.2% per year for decades. And uh, today, uh, energy consumption per capita is down 15% from where uh, Carter was in 78. So that had a huge influence on gas prices. Now, gas prices have jumped up almost a dollar in the last, as you know, uh, three to six months. Uh, that's largely, I think, due to people kind of coming out of their shells, traveling more, and uh, and just the effect of supply side issues primarily. Uh, can you blame that on the current president most of it, you probably cannot, perhaps a little bit, but not not the majority of that cast price increase.
0: So do you have a favorite president?
4: Well, um, writing a biography about presidents is about like, um, and, and asking a question like that is about asking, do you have a favorite child? <laughs> but uh, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to dodge that question. I would say if I had to pick one out of the 17 I wrote over, it would be Harry Truman. Why? I, well, I have a great amount of respect for Harry Truman. He, uh, he was only vice president for 82 days when... Franklin Roosevelt died. And Roosevelt really had not brought him into any of the things he was working on in terms of managing the end of the war. And uh, uh, Truman knew nothing about the atomic bomb. So he was faced with ending World War II, the decision to drop the bomb, how to handle the growing uh, Cold War, the Soviet threat, what to do uh, with Israel uh, as an independent nation or not to support that. He had the Korean War. uh, He had just a number of issues he had to deal with. He was unprepared for that. And he, uh, I think, all in all did a did a very good job. The other thing about Truman I admire about is he left the presidency, the least popular president in a, in modern history. Uh, he had fired General Douglas MacArthur because MacArthur wanted to go into China, perhaps even with nuclear weapons, and he fired him for that. And people loved MacArthur and, and they really uh, made uh, Truman very, very popular. And, and, uh, but Truman stood by his guns and uh, today he's respected as one of the top presidents. Typically, you know, in the top 10 for sure.
0: So your lens on the presidency is really one about economics, uh, personal income, income equality, and I'd love to get your take on the inequality that I feel like we're experiencing right now as compared to the Gilded Age, but also taxation. So when you take that lens, um, place that lens on the Oval Office, um, what are some patterns that uh, emerge for you?
4: Well, one of the... uh... The realizations I had writing this book, uh, I don't know if you'd call it quite a pattern, but was the observation that there's really no single universal economic policy. Like today you have uh, politicians that say supply side economics is the only answer. You have politicians that say Keynesian economics or what we call demand side economics is the only answer. You have monetarists. Those are all just tools in a big uh, toolbox. It's like a carpenter saying, I only use hammers or I only use a wrench economists really should be using all of those tools. And because of politics, they've become quite partisan in that regard. And that's one of the kind of epiphanies I had writing this book, that uh, economics should not be politicized, but it has been, unfortunately.
0: Well, yeah, because that's why I'm judging my life is my pocketbook, by and large, right? Am I doing okay in the world? And then that gets weaponized in the political circus. So you were a CEO, three companies, successful companies. Um, So- presidential politics could in one way really affect you as a ceo over the course of your career did you look at it that way as it was happening or in retrospect having written i think
4: primarily to be honest with you in retrospect primarily uh you know when i was running my companies i was so focused on the the issues of running the company the competition the, the technology issues uh that was what the key factors were. But it did affect us. The first company I started uh, with two other uh, co-founders, uh, Alliant Computer Systems, in the early 80s, was Really probably made possible because of Carter's uh, cuts on capital gains taxes from 39% to 28%. He cut those in the late 1970s. He gets almost no credit for that. Reagan gets credit for tax cuts, but Carter really got that bandwagon rolling. And that affected our ability to raise money and uh, start that first company.
0: How did it affect your next company, Shareholder.com and Sky Analytics? Can you well, respect, that's, say, a, say uh, well, that there were things that presidents did or didn't do that made it easier for you as a, as a a as a CEO?
4: Well, in, in the case of shareholder.com, uh, which uh, I started in the early 1990s and so to uh, the NASDAQ stock market in 2006, uh, the president and, and the government uh, helped us in that regard. And they they passed um, something called, um, oh, the name escapes me now. Anyway, they basically made it illegal to have conference calls with public companies where only uh, security analysts would sit in and they would trade stocks during the conference call and the public who owned stocks also were excluded from that. And they basically passed legislation in the 1998 uh, timeframe under President Clinton that made that illegal. And that basically, I think, made uh, the stock a much, much fairer marketplace and and helped my company, Sherrida.com, tremendously.
0: Wow. Insider trading on
4: steroids. Uh, Insider trading was rampant, even during a conference call. Wow.
0: And then Sky Analytics, your last company?
4: Sky Analytics, uh, I don't know if uh, I can point to uh, anything where the, uh, the president or the government uh, directly affected that, other than, uh, I have to be frank, we, we probably benefited um, in some respects from uh, the financial crash of 2008 because there's incredible litigation flowing around in all kinds of litigation, uh, all kinds of areas against people. And uh, the focus of Sky Analytics was to provide companies with ways of managing their legal costs. And... Uh, Uh, of course, their their legal costs were skyrocketing after 2008.
0: Talking with Ron Gruner, author of We the Presidents, How American Presidents Shaped the Last Century. And in the book, Ron, you discuss early American tax rebellions from the Boston Tea Party to Shays' Rebellion to the Whiskey Rebellion and their effect on American tax policy. Taking that lens of history, focus it on what's going on right now for us and the current economic debate. Uh, There's the the great resignation that some are talking about um, uh, that we're going through seeing people quit their jobs or not come back after COVID. Um, Do you have any analysis based on history on what we're going through right
4: now? Well, uh, I think the best analysis I would give you on that is the the income inequality we've seen that's evolved over the last 50 years. The middle class and the lower 20 percent of workers had their income peak in 1968, In 1968, the minimum wage was approximately $1.60, but in 2020 dollars was almost $12 per hour in 1968. Today, the minimum wage is $7.25. That's a 38% pay cut. And for a family of four, where you've got one spouse working full-time and another spouse working half-time, in 1968, that family in, in, in 2020 dollars was making almost $35,000. They, comf- they were comfortably in the lower middle class. They were well above the poverty level. Today, that same family working the same way is below the poverty level by four or $5,000 and to survive have to get food stamps and other aid from the government. That's one of the reasons social costs have gone up so much is because wages have gone down so much and the people working just as hard as they did in 68 making much less money.
0: Did it surprise you then, as you started to look at presidential history from an economic lens, that Donald Trump was so successful, a billionaire on, according to him, (laughs) about uh, who who? one of his campaign slogans when he ran, first ran was, what do you got to lose? And appealing to folks that weren't at his country club or his golf clubs.
4: Well, I think he was right about that. I think uh, the people he was talking to, the people I mentioned, the lower middle class and uh, the people working uh, in the bottom 20% of the income brackets, they had, little, lo- they had very little to lose because for 50 years, their concerns had been largely ignored. And he made that a political issue. He made that a campaign issue. And up until twenty twenty, uh, the pandemic. When the pandemic hit, uh, uh, incomes were rising for the middle class and the uh, the lower classes quite nicely. He delivered on that.
0: So, in in looking at presidents through history, uh, what is the direction we should be headed, or are there lessons that you think we should be aware of as we choose our leaders from an economic
4: lens? Well, there's always the debate uh, about you pick a president based on his or her character or his or her policies? And I personally feel that right approach is to pick it on character. Her character ultimately determines the policies of the president, if not in the short-term, in the long-term. And I think uh, if I were to urge people to think about who they vote for, pick the person first and the person's character first, and then pick the policies. The policies are very short So that's a lesson I think, uh, if I'm presumptuous, I think we Americans need to learn.
0: We don't seem to learn, though. I'm looking at uh, your book, and slogan patterns are something that you tracked across different presidencies. From the 1920s, when Warren G. Harding campaigned on America first, then Reagan, let's make America great again, and then Donald Trump, make America great again. These slogans and rah-rah, this team, that team, I think gets in the way of us seeing clearly, especially when it comes to economic policy. And we've had enough time now to say whether supply side or demand side works and under what circumstances. So, um, you know, for the average person, myself included, who doesn't have an academic economics degree, uh, what are your recommendations for besides reading your book (laughs) to get educated, (laughs) but to, to understand it and, and divorce our, our knowledge of, 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 uh, from party and look at
4: policies. Well, uh, you have to look at uh, different situations require different policies, and uh, uh, supply side economics worked very well during the nineteen twenties, for example, uh, when I, uh, Treasury Secretary Andrew Mellon uh, first developed the idea of cutting taxes to raise revenues and stimulate the economy. That worked very well. It failed miserably under Herbert Hoover's administration in the early nineteen thirties, trying to fight uh, find, trying to fight the depression. Um, so I think what americans need to do is they have to look at the current situation and ask themselves well what's the current what's the best policy in 2008 when you had the financial collapse demand collapsed people weren't buying they weren't consuming uh, factory uh, companies were not investing in factories so stimulating the economy and if the government had to do that as franklin roosevelt did was necessary and so taking an ideology where big government's always always bad is just simply wrong it it failed during herbert hoover's time Roosevelt's approach worked well. Now, Roosevelt's approach may not have worked well during the Clinton years and the dot-com boom. It wasn't needed.
0: All right. So let's take a look at where we are now then, Ron, and economic policy. Coming through COVID and the checks that Americans got, and then the political backlash about folks aren't working because they're getting money. So a lot of red controlled states, Utah included, cut those payments off early. And you didn't see this huge rebound. So the Politis, 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 ization of poverty, I think, is something that's going on, too.
4: Well, that's true. I think uh, the fact that people have more money in their pockets, uh, you can consider that good or bad. I actually think that's good. And the fact that people, for, the, for many, many people, for the first time in their lives, actually had an option. Do I want to take some time and think what I want to do with my life? I consider that a positive. And so, and people are doing that. What that means for the long-term and in terms of inflation, uh, that, that's hard to say, but the biggest concern I've got about the current situation is the explosion of the uh, the national debt. Uh, we've been ignoring that issue since uh, President Clinton left presidency in 2000. And the national, as you know, that had been declining for four years, the last four years of the 1990s under President Clinton to his credit. Uh, and since then it's been climbing like a skyrocket, particularly the last few years um, under, uh, well, actually under President Trump and of course, during the pandemic. And I'm quite worried that that's going to come back and, and be a major, major issue someday for the United States, uh, something as serious to more serious than the 2008 financial collapse when, when interest rates go up to 5, 6, 7% and financing that debt's going to be a huge, huge problem for us in America.
0: So any lessons from the depression under the, the presidency there, under the 2008 real estate collapse there, that we should be applying here? Have we learned anything in terms of how policy is being, economic policy is being constructed and implemented?
4: The best economic policy it looks at the long term, not the short term. And Politics is focused on the short term. So that's
0: infuriating. Why ec- <laughs> that's, infuriating. Yeah, that's
4: why our economic policies have a very short term focus. And uh, if uh, if you were to have, for example, maybe I'm getting out of my uh, my area of expertise here, but if, for example, if we had term limits in Congress, where basically uh, our Congress uh, people, um, both the Senate and the House, can think about the long term because they're not going to be in Congress the next 30 years. They're going to be in Congress for six or 12 years at most. They can say, okay, what's the best thing to do because I'm not running again Uh, might be one approach. And I guess if I would propose one single thing to fix the short-term thinking we have in America would be term limits. And the second thing might be to take all the money out of politics.
0: How do we do that, though, since money is free speech and corporations are people?
4: Well, I'm not sure. I know legally corporations are people, but uh, that just depends on what Supreme Court you're talking to, I guess. (laughs)
0: Well, okay. Wave your magic wand then for me and tell me uh, what you would do. Were you president?
4: Oh, Laura, that's a question that is uh, way out of my pay grade. Um, (laughs) Okay, let me ask you this
0: then. Uh, What about the idea of a universal basic income? What do you think of that, applying what you've learned through this examination of the Oval Office and economic policy, the ups and downs of our economy, and what we've experienced during the pandemic with those uh, stimulus checks going out, and looking to the future and where work is headed as technology continues to expand and do things for us. What about a UBI?
4: Well, that's an excellent question. by the, the notion of a universal basic income is not new. That was proposed by many people uh, during the, uh, the 1930s, during the Great Depression. I talk about that. They vote quite a bit in the, the Roosevelt chapter about that, about the need for uh, universal basic income, or the, at least the demand for it. Uh, the big issue is going to be automation. Uh, today, uh, you know, being in a computer business, uh, when I first started in the, in the 60s and 70s, a semiconductor facility uh, making uh, microchips employed hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands of people making those chips. Today, that's all automated. And that could be done, uh, I don't know exactly, but with a few dozen people. Yet and, that, that, yeah. that, that plant for its shareholders and for the company is generating billions of dollars in revenue and profits with a very, very small labor force. So what do you do with the people that are no longer working in that semiconductor facility. And that's an issue society is going to have to deal with. I don't know if universal basic income is the answer. I don't know what the answer is, but it's going to be an issue. And it's going to be driven by automation.
0: Well, Ron, thank you so much for this great book. Uh, uh, Getting this into the hands of the people to understand the presidency through this lens, I think is crucial, not to mention the tools that you supply in the book for folks to study and analyze it themselves. So I have one last question, and it's another magic wand question. And that's about looking ahead to future presidents and what you think um, would be a successful economic platform that could bring us together?
4: Well, uh, any future president that's gonna uh, invoke a successful economic platform, it's gonna have to be a very, very good communicator because we're gonna have to make some very difficult decisions. And we may well have to raise taxes, may have to raise taxes significantly to begin to pay off that federal debt. And Eisenhower did that. He basically said, I'm not going to I'm not going to cut taxes because we have a war debt to pay and we've got to continue paying those taxes to get that war debt down. And people respected Eisenhower for that. And it may be somebody like an Eisenhower who has to come in and give us our bitter medicine and explain why we have to take that medicine based on our. Lack policies of the prior, you know, three or four decades. Uh, that's the president we need—one that can communicate and tell us what needs to be done, not what we want to hear.
0: And that is Ron Gruner, author of the new book, We the Presidents, How American Presidents Shaped the Last Century. It's a unique look at the presidency from 1920 to 2020. And as I said in the interview, if you do pick up the book, I recommend going straight to the back and starting with the appendices, where you can scan quickly key economic indicators, personal income adjusted to today's dollars, and U.S. presidential election results from 1920 to 2020. And that's our show. My thanks to our guests for stepping up to the mic and sharing their lived experiences, their insights, and their expertise with us. And thank you to you for listening, for plugging into your community weeknights at six during Radioactive on KRCL. Questions, comments, suggestions? Send me an email, radioactive at krcl.org. And be sure to close whatever the email is, good, bad, or indifferent. Please close it with a song you'd like to hear on the show and why. You be the DJ and dedicate it to the community. I'm Laura Jones. Thanks for listening. Have a great night.